It's been a long time since we've had Bible study because we had the inmate meal on the 20th of last month and then we had the day before Thanksgiving and then we had tonight. All right, so this is it. It just feels like so long. Uh, but what I thought we would do, and you have the, the outline there, is we would just kind of run through just a little bit of a survey, a refresher of what we studied last time with Catholicism. And tonight's going to be fun. I've got a lot of discussion questions. So what, what I'd like us to do is be able to talk through this together, uh, especially in regards to Roman Catholics that we talk to, people who are family-oriented, they have Judeo-Christian values, but they may still be trusting in the system of works. So our main idea for tonight is the main idea of last time, which is sola scriptura. Does anybody remember what that, what that means? Right. Our authority comes through scripture and scripture alone. And what we'll note tonight and we'll learn is that within Roman Catholicism, it goes down to the question of authority. At the end of the day, who has the say, Right. And what we'll see within, when the, within the Roman Catholic belief system, you have scripture, and what's the other foundation? Alright, right? The church and the Pope built upon church tradition, right? So it's kind of like, well, why do you believe this? Well, because this Pope said it. Right, And because this was voted upon by council of the church, or we as evangelical Christians, our authority is, what does the Bible write? Not, not, not what have we done, but what does the Bible say? All right, And our start off verse there is Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 through 21. Most of us are familiar with that. It's when Jesus is coming there uh, in verse number Thirteen, and he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they give him the options, right? And in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Now right here, don't you think this is a good question to ask a person when you're witnessing? What value is it in asking them, who is Jesus to you? What's the value there instead of saying, let me tell you who Jesus is? Why is that valuable to ask them, in your opinion, who is Jesus? What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if I'm, if I'm assuming a person believes something about Jesus, and I haven't asked them what they believe about Jesus, I could be answering questions that they don't even have. Right? So, so it's, this is Jesus. I think it's good to ask questions that Jesus asked, right? Because Jesus is Jesus, right? So, so verse 16, and here's, here's where we have that divide between evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, son, Simon, Bar Jonah, or, or son of, of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petras, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Alright, so there you have it, and what did we learn last time 
That's the Roman Catholic understanding of this passage. Number one, who is Peter? The first pope, all right? And when Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, what does the Roman Catholic church teach? Yes, that Peter is the first pope, number one, and Jesus is building all of Christianity on the first pope. Okay? So that's that's kind of where you begin begin the slide. Bryce, would you mind shutting that door? Thanks, man. Uh, we talked about this last time, what comes to our mind when we think of Roman Catholicism, a lot of ritual, right? Things that have to do with large buildings, masses, uh, things of that nature. History of the Roman Catholic Church, we know in 313 A.D., Constantine, with his Edict of Milan, he basically integrated paganism and Christianity, and it became Christianity, the official religion in the Roman Empire. And this is, this is one reason why the American model, I think, is a good model. We'll never find a perfect model, but even in Europe today, most European countries have a state church in some way, right? Now, what is the danger of, let's say, for example, having an American, let's, let's say it's, let's say it's Southern Baptist. Let's just go there, alright? What, what could be the danger of having the government through taxation, even if it's a small minutia, I don't know, maybe like a, like a one one hundredth of your income, something like that. But what's the danger of having the government sponsor and financially support a specific religion or denomination? What do you think? They may tell you what to do, how to do it, and everything. And that's already happened in a lot of uh, these uh, Christian schools that took money. Mm. It's been quite a few years ago that uh, they had Baylor in court because they uh, wouldn't hire a Catholic to teach uh, in Baylor. They didn't believe in it. And they had them in court. Interesting. And I don't remember how it ended up, but they had received money from the government. Okay. And then, and, you know, and then government gives you money, then they own you. Or so they think. That's that's a great point, and wouldn't we wouldn't we largely say whoever holds the purse strings holds the reins of control? Yeah. So so yeah, there's definitely that that the, the government could dictate what is taught. But let let's just think about this. Given human nature, what we know about human nature, we can talk about socialism and things like that. If if the church, even if it's full of saved people knows that it's going to have enough money, how do you think that's going to affect the church's use of finances? They're not going to be good stewards. Bingo. Bingo. Go ahead. If the church is, I think that was your question, if actually the church is, in these cases, really the power that governs the people, then what happens with that is what all governments that have absolute power is they mm. become corrupt. So then the church becomes corrupt. That's a good point. Because I think that's the Lord Acton quote. Happened. It happened, you know, happened mm. you know, during, in the 
history past where, you know, when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, who were the ones right. you know, who were in power and the, the supposed church. And, mm. Mm. That's, that's a great point. Now think about this. Y'all tell me, what should be the motivation for someone going into the ministry? What do you think? There's not, I guess, I don't guess necessarily one specific. The motivation for someone to go into the ministry. They've got to be called. Okay. Uh, and if they ain't called, I heard a preacher say one time, every time the Lord called one, the devil called one. So mm. if he ain't called by the Lord, you might as well forget it. Okay. That's absolutely. There's a lot of people that are called by moms and dads and other people, right? They say, you'd be great at this. They don't have any desire for it, but they go for it because someone else called them other than God. But think about this. If, if the church was supported by the government, then if you're not walking with the Lord or if you've never been saved, then think about, our, and we're not, we're not criticizing government jobs per se. We're not criticizing people who work for the government, all right? But it, but in those situations, if your support comes from the government, you don't have any incentive, right, to do a good job. If the church is always going to be pr- provided by financially through taxes and so forth, then you can have someone who gets into a pastor role and they're not called by God. They don't care about people. They just want a good, stable government job. And then what you get, if that if that increases and continues, then it's basically you have IRS agents as pastors. And that's kind of what you had, like you're pointing out, Lee, during the, the medieval times especially, people who wanted power and control, they went into church work because the church and the government were one. That's one of the reasons why our founders very wisely said that there shall be no law respecting a specific establishment of religion. Okay? So that, that's just, that comes out of that Roman Catholic medieval um, mindset. And we know uh, 42, uh, Attila or Attila the Hun came against Rome. Pope Leo was the guy who went out there and he was the one who talked to the guy who was going to destroy Rome. He respected Leo, Attila the Hun. Rome was saved. Everybody looks to this Christian leader and then uh, problems begin to really start. And we answered this last time, right? Jesus was not referring to Peter as the first pope. Jesus was referring to Peter's confession. And even if we say Jesus was referring to Peter, because Peter was a a major leader, right, in in the early church. Church tradition says that Peter was crucified uh, for the Lord. Some church tradition says upside down. He was self-appointed. He got his foot in his mouth more than the rest of them. <laughs> right, right. And so, even if we say that, you know, Peter, Jesus was saying, you're going to be point man for my early church. Jesus didn't say anything about Pope, right? And Popes don't usually die by crucifixion. Uh, they, they go out in, in style. And uh, another question here, Matthew 8, 14 Peter's marital status was married. Yes. And he was saved once again because he allowed Jesus to come heal his mother-in-law when some people would just say, let her pass, right? 
And so um, that's a bad joke. That's a bad joke. You should see the jokes I don't tell that I hear from other preachers. I don't know about Bibles now. When I was in service, I got a Catholic Bible. And it's not like our King James. It's written different, or it was then. Now, I hadn't seen one in years. But then it was written different, and it left out a lot of things in the King James. Mm. And added uh, things in other places. Mm. Now, it might be different now. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if it's changed, but you're right though. There, there's a lot of differences there, and they include the Apocrypha, which is kind of like the Jewish period in between the Old and New Testament, which it's interesting that the Roman Catholics include the period in which virtually all Bible scholars say that God was not sending prophets. The end of the end of the Old Testament, God says, I'm finished with you. I'm giving you 400 years of silence because you will not listen. And then Jesus comes in like as a loudspeaker, you know, like like no, like it's all quiet. And then the sound system's like, boom, out of nowhere. But it's interesting that they include as authoritative the Apocrypha, which is a period in which God was not speaking and the Jewish people were in disobedience. Isn't that interesting? No prophetic voice. But yet, it's authoritative. Very interesting. Um, and then, then this is something very uh, interesting. Hopefully, we don't run out of time. The donation of Constantine. They tricked, right? They tricked. Uh, was it Pepin, who was a, a Frankish Ger- Germanic leader, into saying that Constantine had donated land and temporal power, political power to the church, and he bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. Historians will say that that is probably the greatest forgery in history. Like the biggest ripoff in history. So that causes us to back up a little bit and understand where some skeptics are coming from when they say that the church is corrupt. Now, we are from the free church tradition, right? We're not under government control. We're not under the control of like a special Baptist group of leaders, we, we are a free church. We can follow Christ as Christ directs us. But if they think that we are that, then it explains why they wouldn't want to have anything to do with us. So that's why we've got to, you know, very carefully separate um, ourselves from that. Pre-Reformation, we've got guys like Peter Waldo, who translated the Bible. Notice the dates here, 1140 to 1217. Uh, we've got uh, John Wycliffe, 13. 20 to 1384 is called the Morning Star of the Reformation, translating the Bible uh, in the English language. This is very interesting because who do most people associate with the Reformation? Yeah, Martin Luther. But Luther just didn't come to it on his own. There was a lot of stuff going on. He was kind of the guy that just dropped the dropped the match, match into the powder keg. John Huss, who was burned uh, alive for standing up for the truth, Savonarola uh, in Italy was martyred as well. And then we come to Martin Luther. Or here's, here's I guess, the, the better uh, depiction here. He was the, quote, the little boy with his finger in the dam who then pulled it out and let the floods come. So, kind of like the powder keg illustration, but flood versus explosion. Um, then Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences that literally mean that meant that if you gave money to the Roman Catholic Church, then your sins would be forgiven. It was kind of like it was kind of like 
when you get pulled over and you get a ticket, they fine you for breaking the law. And then you pay for your crime of breaking the law. They were doing this, but with sins. So people truly believe that if they, like imagine this, if you're back then and I was a priest, you would come and you would pay me money and I would pronounce your sins are absolved or this sin was absolved. A little different, right, than in the free church tradition. And Martin Luther, 21 years old, caught in a lightning storm, cried out to St. Anne, said, please help me. If you do, I'll become a monk. Then he went into the monkery in years trying to earn his salvation. He started reading through Romans, and he came to that verse, verse 17, chapter 1, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And that's what God used to change his heart And it all goes down, this is where we're going to concentrate primarily tonight, it all goes down to an issue of authority. And we know that he nailed the 95 Theses, October 31st, 1517. And that's a great time to teach kids, right, Uh, amongst all of, you know, the Halloween issues and whatnot. You can use that, regardless if you celebrate it or not, to talk about the Reformation. And this is where we stopped last time. He was at the Diet of Worms, and the Diet of Worms wasn't a fear factor thing, right? It was the called assembly, and they were going to try to nail him to the wall, 1521. And here's what he said. He said, if then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, here I stand, I can do no other. Now notice he says, if you can't convince me otherwise, and the issue was that salvation is only through Christ and not through the church. But notice what he says, Holy Scripture and reason. So here's a question that I would really like us to discuss. Um, Does faith contradict reason? Good question. All right. Here's the way, and that's a, that's a question we should ask very, especially if somebody makes a chart say, well, what do you mean by that? In the culture, usually, especially in movies, we see this. Well, I'm a man, I'm a woman of science. I believe the facts. But you are a person of faith. And you just go on faith. What do you think most people in our culture today believe that faith is? If you compare it to evidence. Yeah. Yeah, just, bl- I mean, you, well, 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 do you believe? Sure, I believe. And the Christian who's not, you know, looked at God's word carefully, they'll say, well, I just believe because I believe. They say, what? You just believe because you believe? Well, well, why? Is there any reason? No, I just believe. Well, what happens when we talk to a Muslim? And we say, well, what's your evidence for believing in the truth of Islam? Well, it's the truth. Well, is there any? No, I, I just I just believe. So what we mean by reason, we could say clear thinking, evidence, and so forth. Now here's a question: Can we ever fully figure out God? No. <laughs> no. All right. Now here's another question for the Christian life: Can we ever fully figure out what God is doing? Yes. What's that? Not till we get to heaven. Yeah, yeah, and like like these saying, you know, not unless God is is choosing to reveal us, reveal to us, you know, like here's the reason or here's reasons why I brought this about. 
But here's the thing. Just because we don't understand everything about who God is or everything about what God does doesn't mean that it's irrational to believe in any of that. Because if people say you have to understand everything about God, then we can say, well, do you understand everything about electricity? I mean, even an electrician, you know, the study of light itself, and these lights, if you look at them, be careful, because it'll burn your retina. We've got like the brightest lights in Franklin County in here. But, but does that make sense? And when somebody tries to pin us and say you're either a person of reason or you're a person of faith, we say that faith is kind of like God through his love and his mercy and giving us the Bible. It's kind of like he's leading us like a horse to water. What's the old expression? You can lead a horse to water, but... Exactly. So once God leads us through evidence to the fact that he is real and he can save then there's got to be a point to where a person is willing, through God's grace, to drink the water of his grace. But just because people have evidence for God doesn't mean that they're going to follow God, right? And Romans 1 says that the unsaved world does what to the truth? Suppresses it, holds it down, tries to explain it away. So at the very end of the day, what our world doesn't need necessarily is more evidence that God is real, what the world needs is to come to that water and say, you know what, I'm going to bow my life in humility and repent. It's a moral issue much more um, than an intellectual issue. But Martin Luther had a lot of interesting things happen. He had had to hide um, from authorities and so forth. He was kind kind of like fugitive. If you've ever seen any of those movies, it was kind of like that. that was Martin Luther's life. But he did it for the truth. So here's a question, and this is very, very wide. Uh, What can we learn from the life of Martin Luther? Is there anything that you've picked up from tonight or from our last study last year? Because that seems like how long it was, even though it's been three weeks. Well, he didn't go along with what they were teaching at the time. He had questions, and not just questions, but he, he searched for answers. He used the Bible. Mm. Uh, probably one of the greatest people that's lived since the disciples mm. uh, as far as uh, Christianity. Uh, what? Wasn't he the father of all the Protestant churches? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. Didn't they come out uh, of what he started? Didn't they come from that? Uh, I think most of them, you know, there's still those pre-reformers and those little groups that would pop up and they get wiped out and they'd start. But yeah, I guess you could say he was the the main instigator of the the full-on Reformation. But that's that's a great point about standing alone and standing with Scripture. Now imagine if we had been Luther. And the argument of the Roman Catholic Church is in a thousand years we have had scholars... And language experts go through the Bible and no one has come to the interpretation that you have. Now, once again, these guys were within kind of a state church. They were all, you know, towing the party line. But that's another fact. Imagine if 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 we didn't know what we knew today, all that we knew is what we saw was not right. And then we come to God's word and God's word says that the whole world is wrong. 
And then we have that decision like, boy, am I going to be the one to stand up and say to the whole church, your perspective and your beliefs are wrong. I mean, how, how would that how would that make us feel? I, I don't know about you. Did did y'all end up figuring it out? No. <laughs> okay. Oh, you mean you know? I think they did. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. I guess we could say and ask the same question. I mean, he was willing to die for space. Yes. Are we That's. He stood alone. Right. Right. And that this this right here the the. The example of Martin Luther is huge. Are we willing to stand? Are we willing to lose something? Are we willing to lose everything for the sake of the gospel? And I love that he says, you know what? If you show me through scripture or if you show me through reason that I have misinterpreted the scriptures, I'll back off my position. What he's saying there is that I don't have to be right. There's a huge application there, especially when we think about our relationships and arguments and so forth. Sometimes we just want to be right, don't we? You know, we're the one who wants to have that last word and say, exactly, boom, I told you so. Don't you want to be right? I think we do, but we have to, I think we have to say, I want to follow the evidence. Right, because you want to be right. Yes, (laughs) yes, for the purpose. For the not purpose, not the argument, not the argument, yeah, sure. but be right. Yeah, oh, no sure. Where that puts you. Yeah, no, nobody wants to, to. Nobody wants to be wrong. Right. I want to be wrong. <laughs> That's what I want to do. Yeah, sure. But with Luther, I think it's so good because it's not a, you know, I'm right for my sake to be able to say that I'm right and you're wrong. I want to search the truth. I believe I'm right, unless you show me through scripture or through reason. Right, because I believe I'm standing on what. Bible says that can be shown otherwise, and I'm willing to change to be right. Yes. According to the scripture. True. So, in other words, who's on first? To quote the old play. Uh, Next question How does the question of authority influence a person's worldview or a person's perspective on the world? Like, what, what effect? does our understanding of authority have on the way that we just view life? Who the buck stops with? I think we see a huge example of this in Islam. Right? I mean, think of the commitment that it requires to go through with what is known as a suicide bombing. Okay? Think about that. If I have doubts, Haley, that the Quran is false, yep. or if I have, if I'm like, it's probably false, there's no way I'm gonna go out and strap on something and, and take my life on other people's. But boy, if I truly believe that, that that is the authority, then it makes sense within that mindset to follow that. So let's talk about believers in Christ, Christ followers. If I believe that the scripture is true, that it's been inspired and given by God, then not only does that give me the mental ability to say, I'm trusting in the truth of God's word, and it's God's word because it's God's word. Then what that does is it gives me not only a mental ability to say I'm following the truth, but it gives me that emotional, that heart-driven support to say, you know what, I can follow this. 
And like Luther, I can stand there rooted in God's Word. And if you've ever seen those, go watch the Weather Channel. Okay, my parents, if, the, if you could buy Weather Channel stock, you may be able to. They need to buy it. Because, uh, I mean, when I'm home, sometimes they'll watch the Weather Channel. And they're, they're there like, oh, mercy. Oh, goodness. Like, they're getting freaked out about weather that's never going to hit South Carolina. You know, they're watching, like, videos of monsoons and stuff like that. Oh, mercy. And my mom, she'll get the, she'll get the hands and put on the hips like that. And she'll back up. And she'll do that with her face. And I'm like, Mom, there's no reason to get your blood pressure up watching the Weather Channel, you know? But when we think about those videos that they come on and they loop on those weather programs, it shows the hurricanes with those trees just bending down in the wind. That's Luther. He says, you know what? I'm rooted in God's word and God's truth. And you can throw what you have at me, but unless you show me from God's word or if I'm interpreting it wrong, I here I stand. And that's a, that's a huge illustration. But for the few minutes that we have left, uh, we're going to go through three aspects that the Roman Catholic Church has historically given on why the Bible shouldn't be to where you can read it in your language. Okay? Y'all got that? Because nobody here, you don't understand how to interpret the Bible on your own. You need the church to do that. That's the perspective. Alright? So, you encouraged by that? Okay? Um, Luther actually hid in the Wartburg Castle as a fugitive from the Roman Catholic Church, and he translated the Bible into the common German language. Does anybody remember what language the masses, the church services were in? Latin. Now, did the average European in that time speak Latin? No. Other than the scholars, it was a dead language. So imagine you're going to church, and everything that you know about that is communicated in a language you don't understand. And Luther said, you know what? I think Wycliffe is right. I think that every plowboy in England, and not just there, but in Germany, every common person should be able to have access to God's word. Now, how many of us have sat down last year and says, you know, I've been thinking a lot. Like you throw this out in your Sunday school class. I've been thinking a lot. Should everybody have access to God's word? Yes, Yes, they should, but how many of us, I mean, we just assume, right? We just assume that Bible translation into languages that people speak is good. Okay. Like, I don't think you'd find any person from any church that would say, Wycliffe Bible Translators is doing the devil's work. But that's exactly what, if you want to do a Google search on him, Pope Innocent III said about Bible societies, that they were, quote, satanic contrivances. So we'll we'll look at it. Here's a question. Why would the Roman Catholic Church oppose the translation of the Bible into the common language? There are three basic reasons here. One would be, this is kind of a watershed reason, because people don't know how to interpret the Bible. And a fracturing of, of Christianity would take place because people don't know how to interpret it. And here's the reason why, historically, the church has said we need to keep the scriptures within the church. Number one, because the clergy of the official church, they are the interpreters of scripture. So what if you're in a conversation and, and you say, well, here's what the Bible says. And you quote, for example, John 3.16 or Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace you say through faith, okay, not of works. 
And they say, well, but you don't understand. You may have a Bible, but, but you're not the one who actually says what the Bible means. It's the church and the clergy. I go to church. Now, this is going to hit home even for Baptists. I go to church and listen to what the priest or the preacher tells me God's word means. And he ought to be able, he ought to be reading his Bible and letting the Holy Spirit tell him what it says. Yes. Second reason, because people don't know how to interpret the Bible. They said if we open it up, then it's going to just be, it's going to be crazy. Number three, a fracturing, a breakup of Christianity would take place. So how should we respond? Well, number one, I think this is, this is, this is, we don't really deal with this today, but in the medieval times, we would say that a quote-unquote Christianity that's held together by threats of torture and death is no Christianity at all. And that's what it was, right? I mean, what did they do to most people who said that baptism should be by immersion and it should be only for people who have professed faith in Christ? What did they do to those Anabaptists? In one instance, they killed them. They tied them together and threw them in a river and left them as long as they could kick and stay up. When they got so tired they couldn't, they drank. Mm. Mm. Uh, I've seen pictures of that. Uh, I think it was in uh, Holland uh, where they were persecuted. Yeah, and they were they were. I mean, they were butchered, and it was kind of the mentality, okay, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you. And I didn't know about the tying together, but I mean, that. And I read one account where they would just tie stones to people and drop them. The Catholics, first thing they would do is somebody done something they didn't agree with, they threatened to excommunicate. Right, which excommunication literally means hell with no hopes of purgatory, And if you can't get to purgatory, then you can't get to heaven. So basically, it's an automatic, you go to hell forever. So that's, that's, that's the, that's the issue here. And we want to say that the truth of God's word is persuasive, right? So that we don't need to go out there and have guns, clubs, nunchucks, whatever it is, and force people to believe in the truth. Because if God needs me to go take a gun and say convert or die, then God's pretty weak. Don't you think? If he needs me to torture or threaten people to get them to come to him, why couldn't he be able to do that through his love and his power? So here's a, here's a, a one response. How should we respond when people say, I go to church and I listen to what the priest or whoever it is tell me. We could say, are you sure that Peter was the first pope? Okay, we could go back to that. And so could it, could it be possible that Jesus was referring to Peter's statement rather than Peter himself? And then we go back to Matthew 16 and say, well, did Jesus mention anything about popes there? And if we think that Jesus did, which there's no evidence there, then did Jesus say anything about apostolic secession, about how Peter would a pope what a point. That's a new word. A pope. Yeah, Peter would a pope or appoint the next pope, and then he would poperize the next pope, and then it would be, you know, all the way down. Like, did, did Jesus say anything about that? No. So that would be an example of reading into Scripture as opposed to pulling out from Scripture what's actually there. 
And then number three, um, this is this is so cool. We could say, you know, doesn't the Bible speak of the priesthood of the believers? And if you, you have your Bibles, it would be a great place to take uh, a mark. And I'm just going to read through this. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Question, is Peter talking about only specific believers, or is he talking to all believers? All believers. He's speaking to the church. What the Roman Catholic Church does is say, it says that there is the, the clergy and the laity. That's really an unbiblical term. And I know sometimes we use the term lay and clergy. In the Bible, you have offices of pastor, of elder, of deacon, and so forth. But you never see one person can only get to God by going through another person. You just don't find that. And in verse number 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture, quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, speaking of Jesus. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, here's the key. But you are a chosen race, a royal what? Priesthood. Priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, this is awesome, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does just this passage of scripture do to the idea that you have to go through another person to get to God. Well, you have to go through Jesus. That's the only way you can get there. And he's a person. Or he was. Right. Well, you know, Jesus... He had, he had a human body just like we did. Mm-hmm. you got to... He says that the only way to get to the Father is through him. Anybody that comes any other way is a thief and a liar. Right. Here's a dumb question. Is there anyone else who is like Jesus? No. Okay. So what you said, Jesus is God, right? The way, the truth, and life. Jesus is a man. He is divine. So it's almost like God said, in order to redeem humanity, I'm going to send a redeemer as one of them to save the ones who will be saved, who will repent, so forth. But yet, if there is no one like him, then how dare we say, I'm going to put this institution of a specialized priesthood in between regular people and the only one who can be the mediator to God. And that's where it begins to get very serious. Because if we counsel people, you need to go through the preacher or through the priest, that's not what the Bible says, but it's even more serious because we're literally setting up 
a roadblock between them and God when Jesus has come and destroyed every roadblock and said it's through me. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus came to do what we could not do. And uh, so according to these verses here, who are the priests? Absolutely. The people of God. Every person that's been called out of darkness and into light. You don't see a sectionalized system here. All right? So good. 100% for everybody. All right? So all Christians. So now here's something very important to remember within the context of a local church. It is the priesthood. It's not the priesthood of the believer, but the priesthood of the believers. Have we known somebody that in church or on TV or starting a church says, it's all what I think. It's my way or the highway. I have been the one to figure out whatever it is in the Bible. And, and there's no consensus within the church. What the Bible says here is that the believers are to work together as a family, right? Right. Through things and follow Christ. It doesn't give the license for someone to kind of be a Lone Ranger Christian. Because usually in the Baptist context, we think it's the priesthood of the believer, which in Scripture is the priesthood of the believers. And there's a huge, huge difference there. The difference in local church is usually one of drama or something that's honoring God. Um, the second, second reason here, the reason why the Roman Catholic Church has opposed Bible translation is because they would say people don't know how to interpret the Bible. So what does the Bible say about this? You mentioned Holy Spirit. 1 John 2, 26-27. The Bible says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. I was reading that today in my Bible study. Awesome. John was writing his letter and telling him. I think that the Catholic Church tried to copy uh, Judaism under the law. I I believe that that's where they got their start. Well, and 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 then Peter was uh, an Israelite or Judean, and uh, they just adopted him. And they've left out part of the stuff because he couldn't be a pope because he's married. Right. And they leave that part out just like they left out the part of Mary having other children. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And see, this right there, especially Bill, we look at it and we're like, really? Like, how do you get all that? That's not what the, That's not what that passage says at all. But here's the thing. We have a Bible to read and compare to what is being taught. Imagine if... Most of the people back then couldn't read it all, even if they had a Bible. So what are you supposed to believe? If that's the only news source, so to speak, that you have. And that's what—that's one reason why historically, true biblical Christianity and true education have gone hand in hand. Great works of literature, printing presses, history books, work, I mean, all sorts of stuff. It's like when people have access to the Word of God, it's like... Not only spiritual freedom, but intellectual freedom comes as well. Instead of keeping people in the dark. 
Dr. Haley says that if you check Catholic countries, that they are dominant in most of the countries that are illiterate, that have no learning. That's where they flourish as Catholics. Because the Pope, he's everything. And what he says, the people believe. And especially if you go back and the conquistadors going into Central and South America, Mexico, places like that. Mexico. Right. They would be very impressed by the pomp and prestige, which today we'll make jokes about a Pope Mobile. And they didn't have a Pope Mobile back then, but that, that whole big, extravagant looking religion, and then they Probably talk about. Say what? <laughs> Probably had a Pope horse. I'm going to share that with Ben Robbins, Robertson. He is king of the pun. Um, nice. It's always good to have a groaner once in a while. Uh, number three. No, it's okay. It's okay. We'll recover in time. Uh, number three, they would say, well, if we allowed the Bible to be translated, what would happen is Christianity would fracture apart. Because people don't know how to translate it. They'll come to all these different translations. What do you, what do you think maybe some responses that we could give and most people don't make this argument today, but what, what do you think? Because if we let everybody have it, it's crazy. Good. Yep. And if you don't have access to the truth, or if it's second-hand truth, then there could be some issues there. question we could ask here, and this is just one of many responses, that we could say, does contending for the truth, to use the, the biblical example, does contending for the truth, or trying to find the truth, does that produce divisions? No, it'll produce truth. Eventually. If you really study it. Yeah. Yes. But what truly produces divisions is sin. And we have been called... To speak for, to contend for, to find, to share the truth. And what imagery did the Apostle Paul give in Ephesians 6 of the Christian going out to live the Christian life, so to speak? Was it the picture of a soccer mom or a baseball dad? It was the armor of God with Battle gear, head to toe, tactical gear, I mean, sword and shield and breastplate and helmet. So the fact that we come to that place where we begin to follow Christ, it literally means that we enter a war. So someone can imagine that if we just stay out of a fight, and not, not a selfish fight, but a contending for the truth, that there's just going to be peace. Well, no, what we're trying to do is to defeat evil, not through physical means, because Paul said, right, we don't wrestle against what? Yes, that's the source. It's a spiritual issue. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So that's something for us to, to remember there. Here's a verse in, in Jude uh, 1.3. And we could just put Jude 3 because it only has one chapter anyway. And it says, quote, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Here you have a specific book in the Bible, and the intent for the book being given from God through Jude was that you would contend 
for the faith. That right there should cause us to take confidence that if there ever is a conflict or an intense discussion, maybe an argument, we do it with love and we do it with mercy, but we never back down from the truth. Because the Bible has called us to contend for the truth. Because if we sit back and allow untruth to march on, then where does it stop? 